0: We are moving this season of Advent through the color purple. We are the purple church. It's the idea of red and blue mixing and forming something new. It's the idea of people who are different coming together in one community. I'm really glad that we chose this theme because the unity of the church is, I think, an underappreciated value uh, and goal an aspiration of the church. Uh, It is a gift of God to us, and yet something that we must aspire to. Uh, It is a huge theme in the New Testament, the unity of the church. There have always been forces that would threaten to pull us apart. From the very beginning, if you read... Through the letters to the churches in the New Testament, beginning with the book of Romans all the way through to the back of the New Testament, every letter includes exhortation and encouragement to, to protect and work for the unity of the church. In Romans, a book or a letter known for its great theology, the last section of the book talks about unity. We are the body of Christ. We have many gifts, many functions, but we are all one. We must honor each other more than we honor ourselves. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with with each other. The The weak and the strong accept each other. Do not judge one another. Don't put a stumbling block in each other's way. If you think only of your own rights, you're no longer acting in love, And so on and so on. That's just in the book of Romans. Next letter, 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to be in agreement with each other. Let there be no divisions among you. You are God's holy temple. You collectively are the building, the temple, the container of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who tears it down is hurting the temple of God. In Philippians, Paul Paul writes and says, I would love for you to to have the same attitude that Christ had. Uh, Be of one mind, of one spirit, one in love throughout the New Testament. The unity of the church is lifted up. We are not just a voluntary association of acquaintances. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. We have taken covenantal vows, one with another, and we have vowed to support each other and pray for each other in the keeping of those vows. And so this theme of purpleness is so much at the core because it's, it's at its root. It's, it's, our holiness is bound up in our unity Anyone, there are groups all over town that are associations of people that can uh, splinter off, but the loyalty and the love of the church is, that is meant to be probably our primary witness to the world. The color purple. So, today, in this third Sunday of the season of purple Advent, we come to uh, the, the text that is called the Magnificat, the, the Song of Mary, which she obviously probably borrowed from Hannah in, in the Old Testament. Let us listen now for God's Word. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for God has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God has shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the powerful from their thrones, lifted up the lowly, God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise God made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to all his descendants forever. And then Mary remained there with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yesterday, a busload of Riversiders headed out to go see the, the, uh, the a Christmas Carol, Dickens' Christmas Carol, down at the Alhambra. I wish I could have gone. I was refereeing basketball games, but uh, it sounded like a lot of fun. Here is Dickens' wonderful description of Scrooge. Oh, he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. That's my interpretation of Dickens, by the way. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint from which no steel ever struck a generous fire. Secret and self-contained. Solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features shriveled his cloak, made his eyes red, made his lips thin blue. On Christmas Eve, Scrooge, Scrooge is sitting in his office and his nephew, Bob Cratchit, is next, in the next room, his underpaid cr- clerk, and Bob Cratchit comes in and says, A Merry Christmas, Uncle, God save you. And Scrooge says, Bah, Humbug, Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer. A time for balancing your books. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about saying Merry Christmas on his lips, he should be boiled in his own pudding. We are uh, familiar with Christmas traditions, Christmas commercialization, The humbug of Christmas advertisements, catalogs, and waste. And so it would be easy to be Scrooge-like cynical. Ted Wardlaw, the president of Austin Theological Seminary, wrote, Advent is a particularly dicey time when our purposefully minor key music is in danger of being drowned out by the raucous background music of popular culture. Rarely is the church more countercultural than in Advent. In his book, The Scandalous Gospel of Jesus, Peter Gomes admits that Advent is his least favorite season of the year, and you may be able to identify with that. The reason for him is that the major theme of Advent is hope. And there is a lot about the world in which we live that is devoid of hope, says Gomes. And Christmas makes it worse by by covering over the reality with all the forced merriment and parties and drinking. Quote, what I find difficult to take seriously about Advent is the note of false rather than authentic hope. Humbug I know. Humbug I see. But when hope is imposed upon people who don't have it, well, the world is full of humbug. Have you ever felt like hope or a mood was imposed upon you? Maybe Gomes is too Scrooge-like for your tastes. But there's is, there is an important point that he makes. Authentic hope is not a superficial optimism that sees the world through purple-colored glasses. Authentic hope takes the reality of the world seriously. Today's text, the Song of Mary, contains a laundry list of promised changes, radical changes, due to come about at some future unknown time, maybe distant, maybe near. We can't tell when, but the promises seem assured, the mess. In this world, the the mess of Washington, the, the mess in our own lives, the corruption, greed, the injustice, it will all be changed. People now in charge will be toppled from their perches. The big shots will be out, the little guys will be running the show. Inequities will be eliminated, the positive accentuated, and all will at last be right. Sounds familiar. We've heard it before, and yet it is indeed hard not to be cynical, sometimes, about all the promises. One can't help but wonder when it will happen. The old adage seems true, the more things change, the more things stay the same. No sooner do the good guys replace the bad guys than the former become the latter, No sooner is a reform put into place than we need another reform to reform the reform. Old Testament prophets, New Testament gospel writers, they all record litanies of promises of good things that will happen now that God is coming to us. And yet to see and hear the reports of the media, the world is generally in disarray Gun violence, war and corruption, double-dealing, WikiLeaks, mayhem, and so forth. And that's all external. That's not even to mention what's going on in my own life. It's not Christ who is reigning forever and ever, it seems. It doesn't seem like he is Lord of lords, but someone else. For what is it hard for you to hope? And to keep hoping. For what is it hard for you to hope for in the world? Or for people you care about? Or for yourself? The remarkable thing is that we keep coming back to hope. It's as though somehow we intuitively realize that we can't live without it. We can survive but we really can't live without it we keep coming back to hear again the promises made of old because we need to hear them there's something life-giving that helps us to be able and willing to hope it's why psychotherapist Erik erickson calls hope the vital virtue the vital virtue I thought of this uh, last week when I received a Christmas letter from an old friend. Her name is Mary, and uh, she uh, writes about her past year uh, living for the first time without her husband, uh, a friend of mine who died a little over a year ago. Uh, Cliff uh, was probably the finest man I ever met. He got sick and died at way too young an age, and uh, I don't know that I've really gotten over his passing. But Mary writes about her journey this past year. While I have learned and groaned, and stepped into life without this dear man, the thing that I have the thing that I have experienced the most is God just being with me he does show up as promised and I have experienced the most of God I have discovered that in the worst of times for me there is actually more room for him in my life than there ever has been before in the winter of my soul I have tried to step into things that pain and frighten me as a result they don't dominate my life and are beginning to teach me what I need to learn to move forward in the future. We are defined, I think, not so much by what has happened to us in the past, but by what we hope for. Gordon Allport, the former head of the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, set forth this idea. He proposed that our strivings, what we hope for, aspire to, look forward to, inform how we live, shape our lives. Our capacity to hope is connected to our ability to imagine something new. And this is where Mary's song comes in. Mary articulates the the faithful imagination of the early church, fueled and catalyzed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then moved back to the moment of his birth. And and in Mary's song, we're told that this is not just one more baby being born. The the virginity of Mary, the barrenness of her predecessors, uh, such as Hannah, there are signs that God has intervened in history to, to permit the birth of this special child. That is to say that if this child had not been born, God's people might have ceased to exist, or at least their history would have been very different. Her song is not like many of the praise songs of today that talk about the greatness of God. It's a hard-hitting proclamation of a God who overturns the common order of society. Mary begins by declaring how God will do, has done this wonderful thing for her. He has looked down with favor on the lowliness of his servant, and as a result, all nations will call me blessed. But then, he says, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry with good things the pres- precious message of advent the precious countercultural counter intuitive message is that in spite of what is going on in me or in the world a day of wholeness and reconciliation is coming a day when the economy of war becomes an economy of peace. A day when money spent on weapons is redirected to produce agricultural implements. The countercultural message of Advent is that what is happening at the moment will be replaced by kindness and mercy. So softly and quietly, the message comes, we might have to strain to hear it. But it is there that there is a God, and this God is with us and for us and loves us. Why hasn't it all been turned around yet? Why haven't things gotten all better already? When is it finally going to happen? How will we know? Will it ever? Well, call me an optimist, but I think some things are happening. I, I saw a group of men and women just this week who gathered in this church to talk about healing and hope. It's called an AA meeting. I saw children from this church and school sing to elderly people in our neighborhood. And I saw those elderly people sing back to them like children themselves. I heard wind of the possibility that we may not have to go to war with Iran. That there might be a diplomatic way out. I even heard that that there's some sort of deal that's been struck in Washington. Could it be the kingdom has come? (laughs) To live, hopefully, is to work hard, relentlessly, to throw yourself into the struggle for the realization of one's hope. To hope for justice and peace is to work for it, as did that man who was in prison for 27 years in South Africa. To hope for a time when the poor are cared for and children are honored and nurtured is not to sit around complaining about bad leadership or underfunding. It is to find some hungry people and feed them and find some children and nurture them. The relentless hope of Advent came in Israel's darkest hours. And yet the light of Christmas will not be extinguished. The relentless hope of Advent comes to me and to you this year in very human, real darkness. The darkness when a doctor comes in and says the test results are not good. The darkness when a company downsizes in your Job, your security, your identity is no more. The darkness when a relationship you have lived for and depended on becomes fragile and frayed. The darkness when friends you counted on turn against you. When loneliness just seems to grip your heart. Hope, hope in the darkness, or humbug. I'll put my money, figuratively and literally, on hope. Because 2,000 years ago, a child was born whose name was Emmanuel, God with us, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. May our holy unity and our wonderful diversity be nourished by our shared Hope in this God, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the world thou art, dearest desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Let us receive the morning offering.